I am super excited with this week's guest, Victoria Steger. Victoria is the Chief Learning Officer for the State of Maryland. Uh, welcome, Victoria. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But I do want to be sure to correct one thing. I, I do work in the Department of General Services in the Office of State Procurement. So I do cover the whole state, but I don't want, I don't want to mislead anybody in my secretary certainly be upset if I didn't make sure general services wasn't mentioned. Let's just jump into it because you don't really hear the title chief learning officer and state government in the same sentence. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think Maryland may be at the bleeding edge of this. Uh, Well, certainly in... um, in corporate America, the chief learning officer is, is decades old, you know. Um, and in higher education, we call it a chief academic officer, typically, or something along that line, a provost. Um, but a, a, a chief learning officer in state government, um, state government, at least in Maryland, has been very focused on each agency and each department even would bring people in and they would train them themselves and they would provide for professional development because it may be very different at a department of transportation than it is for a department of personnel or human resources. And so a number of years ago, our um, chief procurement officer here in the state uh, created this position, the one I'm in now, um, to bring um, a sense of unity around how the state spends money so that we could train and educate people on um, procurement and procurement leadership. So there's leadership, there's critical thinking, there's all the skills and competencies that you can imagine. Um, But we really have focused initially on um, how the state spends almost $5 billion a year. But you're correct, not a lot of us out there in state government now. That's just a little bit more than the change you find underneath the couch cushions. Five billion dollars. Approximately, yes. And your job is to train and educate individuals on how to improve purchasing practices. Am I understanding that right? Um, We start with the rules and the regulations and the laws, and then we go to processes, and then we mature our, our workforce into how to do it smarter, better, faster, um, and more transparent. It's extremely important to be transparent to the taxpayers. That's a lot of money in a very small, physically small state. Um, population-wise, I think we're right in the middle or so, but we that is a lot of money. And, um, and of course, all of public service, all state government, we do it for the taxpayers. We're here to provide services and, and things for the taxpayers. So it's important that they know where their money is being spent and that they know how it's being spent and that they can get questions answered easily, including our vendors and who sells to us. It sounds like this is a considerable set of influence of individuals that you, you know, help drive change, improve these practices. How many people are we talking about within state government in Maryland? So a few years ago, um, the state leased some time on IBM Watson and and tried to figure that out to get a clear answer. 
and they came up with there's approximately 6,000 jobs positions in the state that spend money that have authority now many of those are smaller authority so in the state we consider anything fifty thousand dollars or below a small procurement and so i know in our home we all think well fifty thousand is a significant amount of money that's not small but to the state if a five billion dollars is our top number fifty thousand is a smaller procurement but when you get down to who spends the large funds, we're talking around 2,500 people. So 2,500 people spending $5 billion annually across many different departments, it sounds like. So would this include the Maryland higher education system, energy, uh, DMV, all of the above? All of the above, including in Maryland. Um, we also uh, train and support our colleges, our universities, as you said, higher ed, um, but also our counties and our cities and other local municipalities um, because they fall under our state law for that, our state finance law. So how many states have people like you? Are you like a unicorn? Are you this <laughs> rare creature? Oh, I would love to think that, but the truth is, most states have somebody doing some procurement training. There are some other states who are really good at it. Um, the Virginia, for example, and um, uh, Georgia is very good at it, actually. Uh, Texas is another one. Um, but then there are other states who have maybe one part-time person and have nobody doing it. So it's a little of everything. Um, and. I'm working with the national organizations to try to improve that. And I will say the cool thing that I've found since coming to the state is that all states are willing to share content. And when I was a faculty member in a university, that was my life. That's my, that's what I do. And so I wasn't just going to send somebody my whole course, my materials, my everything, all of my research. I, I mean, I might've, but it wasn't something we were encouraged to do because that was our lifeblood. Here at the state, I don't compete with West Virginia, which is our border state with us, or, or Pennsylvania. We don't compete. We, so if I say, I want to do something that helps out our people who are doing, um, I need a leadership program, or I need a critical thinking program. What do you have? And they'll just send me what they've got if they've got anything. Here's your content. Here's the research. Here's everything. Just here you go. And I'll do the same thing for them as well. But because our laws are so different, it has to be a pretty broad subject for us to share as well as we do. But we do share. We do. That's one thing I've noticed about government, whether federal, state, local, this desire to share best uh -huh. practices. You know? uh, so I'm happy to hear that's uh, alive and well uh, mm -hmm. in Maryland. So I'm afraid I have a question that may take two hours to answer, uh, and it's not intended to take two hours. So how do you teach 2,500 individuals to effectively spend $5 billion, and how do you know that they if you're have. doing it well? How do they know if mm -hmm. they're doing it well, and how do you report this back to taxpayers? Excellent. Question. And yeah, you're right. We could spend a week getting into the nitty gritty of all of the KPIs, you know, 
uh, of the um, performance indicators and key performance indicators and things like that. Um, the bigger answer, this the um, rolled up answer instead of the details is um, I actually have a very small staff. I have a total of five people, including me, um, and two are contractors that we use for a special project. So there's really three of us. Um, we use technology. We use technology. We had to. Now, I was hired, admittedly, I was the first person in this job, and so far I still have it, um, but it, um, I was hired four months before COVID. And um, I had just gotten warmed up, really. And uh, we were starting to offer a few classes, and COVID hit. And I said, we have to have a learning management system. And they said, a what? Now, don't get me wrong, HR has one, but they're really segregated. I needed one that covered the whole state. And I couldn't have them segregated. And I certainly didn't want to repeat courses in different systems. That was not useful time. So we did get that. And we did move, um, we moved everything we could online, of course. But my background in instructional design is actually in instructional technology and in organizational change. So I am a big fan of using technology appropriately. You don't just use tech to use tech, but you use it as appropriately as you can. Um, we automate everything we can for involvement and things like that. But we stepped back and um, we started with determining what are the best practices? What are the outcomes? In other words, what are the competencies that we needed? And we created using um, other models, other national models that have been well-researched, um, things that Prometric had done and others and are publicly available and uh, modeled our own competency model. What does a procurement person look like and at what level? And what should they be able to know, do, understand, etc. And we created a three-tiered system of entry-level, full, like a procurement officer, of which those folks can spend, you know, they can spend millions at a time, and they do. Um, and and those are very limited numbers. There's only around 350, 400 of those in the state. But the larger groups do the smaller things, let's say. Um, and then we have a top level, which is developing our, our leadership. And so we took those competencies, we moved, uh, we developed then learning outcomes, and then we created, and it's supported by law, um, which I do think we're one of the few states, if, if the, uh, not the only one, but I won't say that, because I won't guarantee it, that actually require, before you can do the work, you have to pass our training program and our certification test. And so I know one of the reasons they said I was hired was that I had an advanced degree and I could justify, I knew how to write and justify a test that was defensible. You know, it was free of bias, addressed the learning, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. I won't spend a lot of time on that. But I think it's important that I brought a background of higher ed, of, of that academia, but also I'm a former small business owner. So I could speak to understanding of doing business with the government and how frustrating that could be because we are also in charge of training for all of our vendors and suppliers and there's about 46,000 of them so um it's automate 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 and when you say how do you know if you're doing it well that's a hard question um we do have performance indicators that we turn into the governor's office 
Um, but I also do a needs assessment every year. It, it is not an indicator, but it is a needs assessment, and I can justify them using it a bit, that says, I see less need from our workforce that we've, we've polled. Over the last two years, I see a decreasing need of basic, basic understanding of things and more of a, and we do poll for confidence levels as well, a, a little increasing in their confidence that they know how to, how to do things correctly and not have a, uh, a, a, uh, something we've bought, uh, go to court by vendors suing us over it because it wasn't fair or, or it was, I believe the words are capricious and arbitrary is a common term. Um, so you have to be careful with that, but, um, it's a lot of automation as much as possible. Use the technology, but be smart about it and make sure humans are still involved at the end. So we look at our tests every time we give a certification test. We do a test analysis, we do test item analysis, and we really look at it, make sure it is fair and equitable and uh, free of bias and yet still measures accurately. Or, And we have people who fail it. Uh, frankly, if somebody passes, if you have a 100% pass rate, I go, was the test hard enough? You know, I mean, sometimes you have a great class and they're just brilliant, but mm, I don't know about that. Um, we also teach online and we have... Um, yeah, our classes are hybrid, so we do very carefully. We we um, um, use our testing and things like that, designed for that kind of an environment. Where um, I've always, always, as an educator, said, I don't care how somebody learns it. I just want to know that they know it, and they know it well. That's all I care. I don't care if they read the book, they came to my lectures. I don't care. I just want to know that they know it at the end. Uh, I, you know, Jess, I'm sure there's so much to unpack in. Um you know, Victoria's role and what she's done. Uh, any questions or, or thoughts on your end? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I bring this up every on every show in this miniseries, but, you know, my, my real interest is these high-growth entrepreneurs who, you know, started something in their garage and now they've got it over a billion dollars, right? And, you know, so many of them don't, they don't come from an HR background, right? And And yet they're seeing this opportunity of like, wow, now that I have a few thousand employees, like upskilling our, our current employees is actually a huge return on investment. But there's so many ineffective corporate training programs or mass training programs. And so I think the thing, I mean, like most of them are not like you with, you know, 6,000 individuals and 46,000 others <laughs> spending money. But, but you know, they, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, you know, and that kind of, you know, when they when they're crossed over into that billion dollar market. And, and, you know, a number of them, it's like they bootstrap for a while. They've got quite a few employees. And then all of a sudden they finally take an investor. And now there's all sorts of reporting because they didn't used to have a board like that. Uh, or, or they get into the, those early digit billions and they, uh, now go, they now go public. And all of a sudden everybody is doing things like uh, spending differently so the transparency can show up because we have to file you know, all these uh, things with the Securities Commission. And so I guess my question is, we, we all know about bad training where people get measured by did they sit through it, right? Um, I would love to hear from you when you think about the most effective principles for something leading to certification, leading to competency, leading to, I didn't just sit through it, but I can actually do my job better 
and I can prove I can do my job better. What's a principle you would have for, for, for CEOs who are thinking this is what they need to do with their staff? I think they need to not worry. This goes to like, don't worry about training. Worry about competencies or outcomes. What is it you want people to be able to know and do and think and how you want them to be able to think? Skills and knowledge, any trainer can teach you a skill, pretty much. Uh, and and can we get you to memorize best practices in, um, you know, drilling and machining aluminum or something? You know, we can teach that. And, and that, that can be just repetitive learning. But in the end, what is it you really want somebody to do? So if they're a machinist, let's say. And they're using a, 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 an electronic, you know, they're programming these machines now. They're not just using a drill and a press, but they're actually programming it. Well, they have to learn G-code. They have to learn the programming language. Well, what do they need to know about it? And, and does that take a college education? No, it does not, usually. But I call it backwards design. I start with what is it I want them to, where I want them to be. And then I look backwards from to where maybe where they are now or where I think they are. And you can do some formal analysis or you could just do some, you know, your workforce analysis, right? And or what some people do, which is, I don't care where you are, everybody's starting here. We're going to all baseline at this lowest level and move everybody up. Yeah. But um, the technology is out there now to create individualized learning and to deliver it in multiple modalities. So, for example, a class that we teach um, on using a specific piece of software, let's say, um, we'll deliver it. I can't believe how many times I've said, um, excuse me on that. We'll deliver it live in person in a classroom for those people who are, we have it recorded. You can just watch. We have it on, uh, we break it up into little sections. We call them flash sessions. And they're a few minutes each and they just teach a specific skill. Right in Microsoft Excel, for example, we'd have just a flash session on doing a pivot table. How do you do a pivot table? Um, and we also have self-study. We have step-by-step -step guides, and then we have overview guides. So if somebody doesn't need the step-by-step, so they're, they're thinking, I don't remember, I haven't done this in six months, and they go through, they go, oh, there's what I'm missing. So they can quickly read through it. And I can combine those. If they try the self-study and go, well, that didn't work. I still don't get it. They can come to another way. But they determine the learning path. And so they determine what they're going to pit at, where they think they are, and where they think they want to be. And sometimes it's prescribed by job, by what they do. Other times it's just they would like to grow and do this job. They would like to do more. But um, it's, it's more, I'd say, you know, yes, bad trading exists. There's a lot of it. And... I hate doing a class where they just get a certificate that says you came and you saw, and I'm not even sure you were paying attention, but you were, you were sitting there with us at least. I do think it's important that you look at what your competencies are. What is it you want them, not just know and be able to do, but how you want them to think, where you want them to go, where, how, troubleshooting, can they do some critical thinking, things like that, and how you're going to measure that because that's based on your business model and some things like that. And look for ways to give them multiple opportunities, take advantage of creating different pathways that people can self-correct or you can correct for them based on their role and 
time period for evaluation. But in the end, I would say, let's not worry about creating classes and because that's the first answer. Oh, we've got a problem with quality, right? Let's create quality training. Our quality department, that's about, that's about another job. Is that really it? I come at it from an organizational design viewpoint, which is, let's look at this. We did a study, we did a project actually in a town of Michigan um, at an automotive plant, or they had things coming out and the quality was just not making it. They were sending things back at quality check all the time. They had runs in the paint and they weren't touching it. How do you miss that? And they said, we need training, we need training. And our group said, can we go and look and see what they're doing? And when we got there, we found that the light was out in part of their area where they do the quality views. They physically view them. And we said, how long has that been out? Oh, months. They haven't gotten around to replace the lights yet. So we went back to management and said, are you sure they need training? Because I think if you replace the light, that puts those drips. But that's an organizational change or a performance improvement model where you look at the whole situation. And that's what I would challenge um, um CLOs or CEOs or COOs, look at the whole situation. Maybe you have a department that's just, they're struggling and you think, well, their leader's good and there's the best of smart people or what is going on. But instead of saying, well, let's get through some communications training. They're probably not communicating. They'll just go to training first. Although I should say training is great because that's what we do a lot of. But I'm more about how can we look, look, look first where the problem is or where the challenge is, or where the opportunity for growth is. And let's figure out the best way to get there. Training may not always be it. Training, a world training is never a bad thing. My doctoral professor used to say, never a bad thing, but it's not the answer to anything. It is a intervention of some sort. But really, how many of us went to training, sat in a class, even if it was a great class, went, this is great, I'm learning a lot. And then the next day, and you're like, I'm going to do this and this when I get back to my office or my desk. And then you got back and emails hit. And three other meetings come up and all of that went flying out the window. So it's not just about doing that. The other thing is continual support afterwards. We do follow-ups um, three weeks and three months and then ongoing afterwards. Well, we ask people who finish programs with us, certifications, for example, we ask them questions, and we, we challenge their thinking. We have discussion boards for them to do that, um, as Home Depot calls it, belly-to-belly learning, one-to-one. And a lot of people probably will remember if they think back to how they learned something important, it was talking to someone sometimes. So they need that chance to discuss. So that's the different modalities, not just teaching, but discussion and opportunities to network amongst their peers but really looking at where your problems are and where your solutions could be. And training isn't always a solution. Yeah, I, I love that answer. I get myself out of a job. <laughs> well, I, I mean, as you're talking, in some ways it sounds like the difference between knowledge and wisdom. You know, my, my dad was an incredibly intelligent guy, and he used to talk about, like, that in his opinion, wisdom was knowledge correctly applied. And Ooh, well done. I like and it. I think about like what you're saying, I, my, I guess my follow-up question is for, you know, CEOs, senior leaders who, who do want a new competency, but, but they want, they want to measure how people are thinking, not their ability to regurgitate random facts. Um, 
what's guidance that you have on on testing thinking versus testing thinking? Yes. Actually, it's not as hard as people will make it out to be, but it, it takes somebody to think through it a little bit. And and I'm not I'm not implying people are dumb. I'm I'm sorry. Can you edit that out? I didn't mean that. Um it's not as hard as some people may think. Um a simple way to test thinking is if I'm teaching you the five step process to something, and then I teach you a five step process to something else that's related, and another best practices on something else. And then I come back in and I want to test, can you do all of this or do you understand it? Can you apply it? I could just give you a fill in the blank or a multiple choice test. And I would measure how much you listened and retained. And that's about it. Now, those are not bad things. Don't get me wrong. Retaining information is important. But if I want to know that you're able to go back to your job and apply that stuff, then I need to give you a scenario that you would find at your job that involves multiple pieces of that stuff we taught and multiple scenarios and turn it around on them and get them to think differently and and then get them to give me an answer that's fairly simple to measure. It could still be multiple choice, but I've given them probably a paragraph of information. And you'll find some folks like um, my friends at, can I say company names? Okay, all right, just making sure I didn't want to, yeah. Um, my friends at Microsoft, um, I've taken, I was certified Microsoft stuff for years, and they've gotten to where the test, um, they don't just test, um, uh, do you understand how to do networking? Do you understand the rules of, you know, something, uh, Wi-Fi or whatever? They actually give you a whole scenario. It may be a page of reading on a screen, and then they give you four or five questions about it, and those questions don't say what's the correct solution. They say what's the best solution because all of the answers are probably correct and they will work. Some are just going to take longer. They're not really best practice, but it'll still suffice type thing. And they ask you what's the best. Now, I tell my students because they'll say, well, maybe my company doesn't think that's the best way. And I would say, no, 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 no. You got to think about what does Microsoft say is the best because it's their certification. So we, that's how we test. We, we have open book tests because I'm not going to ask you to memorize our code of Maryland regulations. I'm just not. I mean, nobody's going to. Thousands of pages. But I am going to expect you to know how to find it and how to look up things and when to look that up and when to compare and, and also when to go to other resources and how to apply the rules and then you come up with the best solution to a problem, to a challenge. And so that's how we write our test. And I would say to a CEO or something like that, um, evaluate that way. Even if it's just an interview, you know, um, HR departments these days, I'm told, uh, at a conference I was at last, just last week in National one in Denver, um, they do stay interviews. So you do onboarding and you have employees that have been there for a while. And then they do stay interviews. They go back to saying, how's it going? What can we do to help? What will keep you here? Because according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average employee is staying at their job 3.9 years right now. Just not long in many cultures. And some culture, in some industries, it's probably a good time. But in state government, that's short. We're used to people coming in and spending a lifetime here. Um, and so they're trying to keep people in their jobs, keep them there. And they're doing these stay interviews. 
But that could be a great way for interviews, for day interviews. It's also if somebody's looking to get promoted. Um, it's uh, it's a, it's it's also a way to measure. You give a department that's gone through some training, maybe in quality. I don't know. I I used that before, and you give them scenario based things and let them work through it individually. Or if you want to look at team building as a team, and you have somebody watch them, just one human, but they can watch them and see how they interact and are they communicating and are they are they arguing it through and then coming up with the best solution. So yeah. I, I think there are ways to do it. You just got to think a little different than the school. When, when I went to school a hundred years ago, um, you know, it was pretty much still in the bubble on the sheet, on the Scantron, right? So you, we, you can still use those, but I think if we get past that, there are ways to measure that would give them the things that they need to report out to their board and to their investors. Uh, that's great. Well, Spencer, I think we got time for another question or two. Why don't we let you close it off here today? I think the first one would be, from what I'm hearing, a big part of your job is to teach the technical side of purchasing regulations. We're a part. I don't know the size, but a Actually, part. Actually, they would. They, it is a part, yes. But I think my bosses would be very upset if if they thought I was just focused on tech. Oh, I'm yes. sorry. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is the Sorry. second part of my question. Mm-hmm. So I would think that a bigger part of your job is to show others how purchasing acts as a strategic partner in meeting key objectives that that agency has. And in some ways, in many ways perhaps, teaching the technical side is... um, less difficult than positioning yourself, teaching others, demonstrating to them how you are a strategic partner. Can you speak a little bit about your efforts to do that across the state government ecosystem in Maryland? Yes, and I agree with you. Um, Teaching any technical skill is, is very straightforward. You either do it right or you do it wrong. And so, you know, there are technologies that require a lot of decision making and so you have to walk them through the decision making but in the end you've either clicked the right buttons and typed the right things in or you haven't um and and that is a, a key you're right that is a key thing we're doing because we're rolling out a whole bunch of new technology to do that with but we call it the value of procurement how do we demonstrate value um most purchasing departments if you not most many how about that? Some, they would say they feel like they're firefighters. They're just getting asked to do things all the time, and they're just trying to do what's needed. But if you could do some strategic sourcing, which is what we call it, and um, and there's a great program at the University of Tennessee that does that teaches about this, um, and um, and you can work with your vendor community, you can reach out to your suppliers. Um, you could work then with the government heads and, and, and look at where they feel their pain is and then step back. And just like I was talking earlier on how you analyze and you test things, it's the same thing for demonstrating value. We need to be able to show that we can help them not have to go through a significant spend model process that takes months at a time 
every couple of years and yet still be fair to the vendor community so that they feel they get a chance to compete, right? They need to feel like they have a chance to step in and be competitive and get a chance to win that contract or win their business. Um, so it's a big balance, but we have to be a strategic partner to them. We have to listen to their needs, but more so than that, we have to present them with different ideas. So we have to be aware of leadership things that are going on elsewhere and bring them home and apply them if we can or demonstrate them. We have to listen to some of the national and international business leaders. We have to be able to look and do our market research. That's a huge thing. We need to know where the market is going. What's the new technology? We may have a three-year contract to buy something and a year later, there's a whole revelation, revolution, a horror interruption in the business industry. It changes it. Well, we need to have put the in that contract so we can invite that vendor back in and say, help us figure out how to use this new stuff you've got. These new ideas or new tech or new whatever. And, and that disruption becomes something positive instead of we're sitting there stuck with two-year-old, three, five-year-old stuff because our contract locked us into that. So we have to be smarter with our terms and conditions. Um, and we have to demonstrate value both to the government, but also to our vendors, because in the end, um, both of the taxpayers and that's who's supporting us. So it's critical that they feel like they've gotten a chance to be competitive and to be able to get those contracts with the government. On the other hand, we need to be very strategic and develop the relationships with the vendors, um, and how the government agencies develop relationships with their vendors. So our Department of IT has good relationships with the Amazon Web Services of the world, the and the Cisco, and those guys, um, as well as they value and have re and develop relationships with the small businesses, the diversity that we're trying to increase. Because procurement actually can be a great economic driver. We can help large businesses reach out to our smaller businesses, help find them and bring them in as subcontractors to then when the smaller businesses do well and grow, they can become prime contractors themselves. And that increases our economic engine here in the state. And it, it's really up as, as, as state leaders to make sure we do all of that. Um, it's a big thing. I've only been here three and a half years. So I would say um, value proposition is, a, uh, is what we call it our value proposition, right? That's a business term, I guess. And um, we're still still getting there. Um, one challenge in state government is we tend to change um, administrations every four to eight years. And a lot of times that changes your entire focus of what's critical. Um, now, don't get me wrong, in the business industry, I know they change a lot. You know, there could be a lot of turnover. Um, but uh, here in Maryland, I, I will say we have we had a tremendous governor, Freeder. Our new governor that came in in um, uh, January is just amazing. And even though we're in different parties, they um, they have some similar things enough that we haven't had to do a, you know an about face on a lot of stuff. And that's that's really critical to keeping us moving forward on the positive things. So the value proposition I think um, is an opportunity for growth in our not only in like a procurement role or a purchasing role, that is important because it's a lot of money. But I think it's also been a learning role. And I think that goes back to what both of you have asked questions about that. The first thing a business cuts when they're struggling is training. 
right? A lot of times. And understood. It, it, you know, it's either that or keep the lights on. All right, we do that. But I think in the end, if we look at training not as a separate department, but as a totally integrated strategic partner to helping with economic and business growth and business development by developing your human capital resource, um, but being creative with it and, and not just, oh, we're going to teach a classroom series on uh, executive communication. Why? What's the outcome? You know? So I think, I think if they're creative with it, I think they could really do well. So I think for us, we have to continue to develop our value proposition and to bring it um, to the taxpayers. We have a, um, of course, the legislature, we have an advisory board that is over us, um, of course, um, legislature, and um, we, we report to them on a lot of numbers. Um, my group puts forward around three, we manage around 3,000 enrollments a month. And, um, you know, for three people, that's so good. So I'm pretty proud of my team. I'll say that. I'll, I'll give it up to saying, you know, I need my job. Well, they do the work. Let's admit it. But I think it's important that um, we, we do get out there with the value proposition more. I think you brought up an area that we need to grow in as well. I understand it, but I'm not there. I, I, some. We're there some. But um, I'm looking forward to watching other parts of your series and seeing what other people say about it as well. See if I can get some good ideas. <laughs> Where one sources products and services is anything but straightforward. It can be very, very complicated. Um, diversifying your products and services sourcing pool um, is critical. Can you speak to maybe one example that because of your training, because of your uh, educating, uh, there was a win uh, from your perspective with, you know, bringing on a vendor or completing a project, um, y you know, uh, f from from a from a diversity standpoint. I don't follow the individual projects as much. I can tell you that we've increased our number of um, minority, small, and women-owned businesses over the last three years because we've done so much training and outreach to the vendor community and, and work with our partners. Um, we have increased um, meeting our burdens as a state. We have a 29% goal, but we don't always get there. But we have gone up the last couple of years. So I would call those wins, but a specific project, hmm, I should have looked one up beforehand. Sorry, I did the, not. The, 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 that's sorry. okay, Victoria. You, um, out, but... you're positioned. No, 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 no. You're positioned um, at very much at a macro level. I should have I taken am. that into account I when I posed I that question. I, yes. was, I was thinking back to I've had many small businesses send me notes that say, hey, we took your training, and one of the classes we teach well, uh, how to how to get noticed, how to increase your visibility. How to get the primes to find you for the smalls and the, you know the startups and things like that and we we talked to them about using our tech about going to the different events and about um just looking at competitors and seeing who they're doing business with they you know and and we've gotten i've gotten emails from them saying i was able to get on with a new prime and we're starting a new project and i'm really excited and um thank you and you know i've got a few of those the out of boy type things um but not a specific uh, procurement project, but boy, that's one I should have in my pocket. Now I'm going to have one of those because I can imagine somebody else updating that in the future. 
from my own government saying, oh, you do this. Well, how do you know? And I'm like, um, yeah, that's good. I think that would be a, a better one to have in your pocket. Thank you. Well, I'm sure you have plenty of them, Victoria. Uh, and this was absolutely fascinating. You know, you're opening a window to us into the the future of purchasing and the the um, learning associated with how one does that within a very matrixed ecosystem uh, in Maryland is absolutely fascinating. Thank now, you. Now we have around ninety eight thousand employees, so there's a lot of people here. And um, I appreciate the ability to represent them hopefully well and represent our state. And um, I look forward to learning from you all as well. I look forward to the rest of these uh, podcasts. Absolutely. And maybe before we let you go, um, if people are uh, looking for careers out there, where's the best place to look? So if they're looking um, for careers in Maryland, um, if you just go to maryland.gov, um, right at the on the front page is a link to our comprehensive statewide career um, cloud-based app. And um, I tell you, Maryland's hiring. Our governor made it a point that we had, um, I think, around a 14% open rate when he started. And he said, nope, 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 we're going to fill those positions. The, the state people in need these people, the state, well, he's doubtful. So we've been hiring and we are hiring. So please, no matter what you do, consider Maryland as a beautiful state. Well, it's funny when you think about size of businesses, because for a lot of businesses, a 14% open rate uh, means that there are not many jobs. But when you have 98,000 employees, that's a lot of jobs. 14,000 open jobs. That's a lot of jobs, right? So It is. It is. Listen, Our departments are going, ah, you're going yeah. to hire them all now? But um, uh, I, I do think that, um, and, I, and I could be wrong on that percentage, but I know it was higher than he wanted to say that. And we, um, but there's a big emphasis also on diversifying our hiring and really getting out there and making sure we don't just hire for, oh, you have to have a, a, a this certificate and a that degree and a this and a that, but looking at those competencies and, and looking at what, what is somebody bringing that we can use rather than do they have the degree in such and such. Um, and I think that's that's a really good step forward for us in the state because we're going to look at people we wouldn't have normally looked at before. Yeah, well, this has been fun for me. I, you know, again, I'm typically interviewing these startup founders or people like this, and so this is like a different this is a different glimpse glimpse into a, a different aspect of organizations for me. So thanks for making time to do this, and uh, and we'll stay in touch. Absolutely, thank you both so much. I've enjoyed this, and well, I'll get off the hot seat now and. I'm going to go look that up, Spencer. <laughs> look that up. I'm going to ask. <laughs> I hate that. Thanks, Victoria. <laughs>